33. The two pounds that B had given me lasted about ten days. It lasted so long, and the fact that it did was due to Paddy, who had learned parsimony on the road and considered even one sound meal a day a wild extravagance. Food to him had come to mean simply bread and margarine, the eternal tea and two slices, which will cheat hunger for an hour or two. He taught me how to live, food, bed, tobacco, and all, at the rate of half a crown a day. And he managed to earn a few extra shillings by glimming in the evenings. It was a precarious job, because it's illegal, but it bought in a little, and it eked out our money. One morning we tried for a job as sandwichmen. We went to five, at five to an alleyway behind some offices, where there's already a queue of thirty or forty men waiting, and after two hours we were told that there was no work for us. We'd missed not very much, I should say, because sandwich men have an unenviable job. They're paid about three shillings a day for ten hours' work, and it's hard work, especially in windy weather, and there's no skulking, for an inspector comes round frequently to see that the men are on their beats. To add to their trouble, they're only engaged by the day, or sometimes for three days, but never weekly, so that they have to wait hours for their job every morning. The number of unemployed men who are ready to do the work makes them powerless to fight for better treatment. The job that all sandwich men covet is distributing handbills, which is paid for at the same rate. When you see a man distributing handbills, you can do him a good turn by taking one, for he goes off duty when he's distributed all his bills. Meanwhile, we went on with the lodging house life. It was a squalid, eventless life of crushing boredom. For days together there was nothing to do but to sit in the underground kitchen reading yesterday's newspaper, or, when one could get hold of it, a back number of the Union Jack. It rained a great deal at this time. Everyone who came in steamed so that the kitchen stank horribly. There's only one excitement in this periodical tea and two slices, and I do not know how many men are living this life of London. It must be thousands at least. As to Paddy, it was actually the best life he'd known for the past two years. His interludes from tramping, that's the times when he had somehow laid hands on a few shillings, had all been like this. The tramping itself had been slightly worse. Listening to his whimpering voice, and he was always whimpering when he was not eating, one realised what torture unemployment must be to him. People are wrong when they think that an unemployed man only worries about losing his wages. On the contrary, an illiterate man, with the work habit in his bones, needs work, even more than he needs money. An educated man could put up with enforced idleness, which is one of the worst evils of poverty. But a man like Paddy, with no means of filling up time, is as miserable out of work as a dog on the chain. And that's why it's such nonsense to pretend that those who have come down in the world are to be pitied above all others. The man who really merits pity is the man who has been down from the start and faces poverty with a blank, resourceless mind. It was a dull time. 
and little of it stays in my mind except for talks with Bozo. Once the lodging house was invaded by a slumming party. Paddy and I had been out, and coming back in the afternoon, we heard sounds of music downstairs, though we went down to find three gentle people, sleekly dressed, holding a religious service in our kitchen. They were a grave and reverend signor in a frock coat, and a lady sitting at a portable harmonium, and a chinless youth toying with a crucifix. It appeared that they had marched in and started to hold the service, without any kind of invitation whatsoever. It was a pleasure to see how the lodgers met this intrusion. They did not offer the smallest rudeness to the slummers. They just ignored them. By common consent, everyone in the kitchen, that's a hundred men perhaps, behaved as though the slummers had not existed. There they stood, patiently singing and exhorting, and no more notice of them was taken than if they had been earwigs. The gentleman in the frock coat preached a sermon, but not a word of it was audible. It was drowned in the usual din of songs, oaths, and clatter of pans. Men sat at their meals and card games just three feet away from the harmonium, peaceably ignoring it. Presently the slummers gave up and cleared out, not insulted in any way, but merely disregarded. No doubt they consoled themselves by thinking how brave they'd been, freely venturing into the lowest dens, etc., etc. Bozo said that these people came to the lodging house oh, several times a month. They had influence with the police, and the deputy could not exclude them. It's curious how people take it for granted that they have a right to preach at you and pray over you as soon as your income falls below a certain level. After nine days, B's two pound was reduced to one and ninepence. Paddy and I set aside eighteen pence for our beds and spent three pence on the usual tea and two slices, which we shared, an appetizer rather than a meal. By the afternoon we were damnably hungry, and Paddy remembered a church near King's Cross Station where a free tea was given once a week to tramps, and this was the day, and we decided to go there. Bozo, though it was a rainy weather, said he was almost penniless, and would not come, saying that churches were not his style. Outside the church quite a hundred men were waiting, dirty types who had gathered from far and wide at the news of a free tea, like kites around a dead buffalo. Presently the doors opened, and a clergyman and some girls shepherded us into a gallery at the top of the church. It was an evangelical church, gaunt, willfully ugly, with texts about blood and fire blazoned on the walls, and a hymn-book containing 1,251 hymns, and reading some of the hymns, I concluded that the book would do as it stood as an anthology of bad verse. There was a service about after the tea, and the regular congregations were sitting in the well of the church below. It was a weekday, and there was only a few dozen of them, mostly stringy old women who reminded one of boiling fowls. We ranged ourselves in the gallery and the pews, and were given our tea. It was a one-pound jam-jar of tea each, 
with six slices of bread and margarine. As soon as tea was over, a dozen tramps who'd stationed themselves near the door bolted to avoid the service, and the rest stayed less from gratitude than lacking the cheek to go. The organ let out a few preliminary hoots, and the service began. And instantly, as though at a signal, the tramps began to misbehave in the most outrageous way. One would not have thought that such scenes possible in a church. All round the gallery men lolled in their pews, laughed, chattered, leaned over, flicked pellets of bread amongst the congregation. I had to restrain the man next to me, more or less by force, from lighting a cigarette. The tramps treated the service as a purely comic spectacle, and it was indeed a sufficiently ludicrous service, the kind where there were sudden yells of Hallelujah! and endless extemporary prayers. But their behaviour passed all bounds. There was one fellow in the congregation, Brother Bootle or some such name, who was often called on to lead us in prayer. Whenever he stood up, the tramps would begin stamping as though in a theatre. They said that on a previous occasion he'd kept up an extemporary prayer for twenty-five minutes until the minister had interrupted him. Once when Brother Boodle stood up, a tramp called out, Two to one, he don't beat seven minutes, so loud that the whole church must hear. It was not long before we were making far more noise than the minister. Sometimes somebody below would send up an indignant, Shh! But it made no impression. We set ourselves to guide the service, and there was no stopping us. It was a queer, rather disgusting service scene, really. Below there was a handful of simple, well-meaning people trying hard to worship, and above were the hundred men whom they had fed, deliberately making that worship impossible. A ring of dirty, hairy faces grinning down from the gallery, openly jeering. What could a few women and old men do against a hundred hostile tramps? They were afraid of us, and we were frankly bullying them. It was our revenge upon them for having humiliated us by feeding us. The minister was a brave man. He thundered steadily through a long sermon on Joshua, and managed almost to ignore the sniggers and chattering from above, but in the end, perhaps goaded beyond endurance, he announced loudly, I shall address the last five minutes of my sermon to the unsaved sinners. Having said which, he turned his face to the gallery and kept it so for five minutes, lest there should be any doubt about who were being saved and who were the unsaved. But much we cared about that, I'll tell you. Even while the minister was threatening hell fire, we were rolling cigarettes. At the last day, men, we clattered down the stairs with a yell, many agreeing to come back for another free tea next week. The scene had interested me, and it was so different from the ordinary demeanour of tramps, from the abject, worm-like gratitude with which they normally accepted charity. The explanation, of course, was that we were out, we outnumbered the congregation, and so we were not afraid of them. A man receiving charity 
practically always hates his benefactor. It's a thick characteristic of human nature. And when he has fifty or a hundred others to back him up, well, he will show it. In the evening, after the free tea, Paddy unexpectedly earned another eighteen pence at Glimming. It was exactly enough for another night's lodging, and we put it aside and went hungry till nine the next evening. Bozo, who might have given us some food, was away all day. The pavements were wet, and he'd gone to the Elephant and Castle, where he knew a pitch under a shelter. Luckily, I still had some tobacco, so that the day might indeed have been worse. At half-past eight, Paddy took me to the embankment, where a clergyman was known to distribute meal tickets once a week. Under Charing Cross Bridge, fifty men were waiting, mirroring in the shivering puddles. Some of them were truly appalling specimens. They were embankment sleepers, and the embankment ledges up the worst types than the spike. One of them, I remember, was dressed in an overcoat without buttons, laced up with rope, a pair of ragged trousers, boots exposing his toes, and not a rag else. He was bearded like a fakir, but he had managed to streak his chest and shoulders with some horrible black filth resembling train oil. What one could see of his face under the dirt and hair was bleached white as paper by some malignant disease. I heard him speak. He had a goodish accent, as of a clerk or a shopwalker. Presently the clergyman arrived, and the men ranged themselves into a queue in order in which they had arrived. The clergyman was a nice, chubby, youngish man, and curiously enough very like Charlie, my friend in Paris. He was shy and embarrassed, and did not speak except for a brief good evening. He simply hurried down the line of men, thrusting a ticket upon each, and not waiting to be thanked. The consequence of that, for once, was genuine gratitude, and everyone said that the clergyman was an effing good fellow. Someone, in his hearing, I believe, called out, "'Well, he'll never be an effing bishop!' This, of course, intended as a warm compliment. The tickets were worth sixpence each, and were directed to an eating-house not far away. When we got there, we found that the proprietor, knowing that the tramps could not go elsewhere, was cheating by only giving fourpenny worth of food for each ticket. Paddy and I pooled our tickets and received food which we could not have got sevenpence or eightpence in most coffee shops. The clergyman had distributed well over a pound in tickets, so that the proprietor was evidently swindling the tramps to the tune of seven shillings or more a week. This kind of victimisation, well, it's a regular part of a tramp's life, and it'll go on for as long as people continue to give meal tickets instead of money. Paddy and I went back to the lodging house, and still hungry we loafed in the kitchen, making the warmth of the fire a substitute for food. At half-past ten, Bozo arrived. He was tired out and haggard, for his mangled leg made walking in agony for him. He had not earned a penny at screaming. All the pictures under the shelter were taken, and for several hours he begged outright, with one eye on the policeman. He had amassed eightpence, it was a penny short of his kip, and it was long past the hour for paying, and he'd only managed to slip indoors 
when the deputy wasn't looking, or at the moment he might be caught and turned out to sleep on the embankment. Bozo took the things out of his pockets and looked them over, debating what to sell. He decided on his razor, took it round the kitchen, and in a few minutes he'd sold it for threepence, enough to pay for his kip, buy a basin of tea, and leave a halfpenny over. Bozo got his basin of tea, sat down by the fire to dry his clothes, and as he drank the tea, I saw that he was laughing to himself, as though at some good joke. Surprised, I asked him what he was laughing at. Well, it's bloody funny, he said. It's funny enough for punch. What do you think I've been and done? What? Sold me razor. Ha! Without having a shave first, of all the fools. He had not eaten since the morning, and he walked several miles with a twisted leg. His clothes were drenched, and he'd had a halfpenny between himself and starvation. With all this, he could laugh over the loss of his razor. One could not help admiring him. <laughs>